Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim, and uh, now a special. Uh, he cut his vacation 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland to be here. Too. Oh man, I let, let's not go there. No, we're going there because um, I have some <laughs> things to say about it. It's <laughs> I, I, I. Oh no! Wait, do we, wait, wait. I, I mean, I do. We even know? Have we gotten the final word yet today? <laughs> well, now they found a debris field that apparently is different than the Titanic uh, debris field, and you know, it's probably not too much further before they find out. I mean, here's the thing. Right, I, I find this whole story a little bit angry. I, it makes me angry because it makes me angry too. Not just yeah. because you know you got these rich super tourists going to see like a graveyard um, underwater, but that's like whatever. I get it. Rich people always get to do things no one else gets to do, and and there's a lot of fascination about the Titanic. I mean, I was fascinated sure. as a child for years, wondering if we'd ever find it. So, you know, this is going back before the days of when they actually found it. Sure. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, they found it in 85. And you and I have had this discussion, maybe offline, of how exciting it was. Like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Like, my imagination, the idea that way down under the murky depths is this massive ship. So, what you're saying is that if you were worth $10 billion, you would do this? No. I would not. Oh. Um, no, no, no. It's the same way as like, yeah, the idea of being up on the top of Everest, the tallest peak in, in the world, is kind of cool. I'm not going to risk my life to go up there. <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> you got to be an idiot. And so, yeah, you know, there are, there are scientific uh, voyages under like really state-of-the-art subs, mini subs, and things that are designed. Yes. And those have risk. Yes, there's always a risk. But- for 90% of that stuff, the scientific stuff, can be done by robots. Yeah. And and like I said, there's always going to be a risk if you go two and a half miles down where the pressure will just... Sure, there is. Yeah, it's, uh, absolutely. I think it's just a matter of time before one of these billionaire spaceships blows Oh, up. absolutely. That's just a given. Yeah. I don't know who which the, the celebrity is going to be <laughs> on that voyage, but it's absolutely because... And here's the thing, right? This is what gets me. Now, look, we're getting a little political here, but the the people behind this particular voyage, right? Do not believe in regulation. They are libertarians. Yes. And they are, you know, full free enterprise. Hey, we've got this, you know, the innovation. People want to have money. Let's go do these things. We shouldn't have anybody interfering with us to do that. Okay. Yes. But I watched this uh, little... Uh, segment from CBS Morning, uh, Sunday Morning, that was from last year, all right? Yeah, where they interview this guy, the CEO, yeah. Like, they went on the big boat and that. Now, first of all, this is fascinating because they asked him if this even makes any money, and he was kind of laughing. No, they spend a million dollars on fuel to get out there. That already makes me really angry. Oh my God! So there's that, but then there's this little mini. It's 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 a submersible. It's not a sub. Mm -hmm. They can't classify it as a sub. Yeah. This thing is so like shoddily constructed, and that like it is so ramshackle, and you're crammed into this thing, and it is run by like a computer joystick, um, right? Controller, and like it literally pretty much goes down blind and relies. This is insane on text messages to go up to the ship to tell it where it should go. That's insane. Yeah, it was a death trap waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they didn't need they didn't ha I mean there's no 
there's no backup if this kind of thing happens like say they get stuck and that there's no way to communicate i mean no uh, it, it, it's just absurd yeah and the and the guy was like we don't need inspections and certifications we uh we're innovators and then i guess the his partner right who didn't was in the uh boat <laughs> the, the the submersible going down i mean this guy is now dead but his partner was all upset that governments weren't reacting fast enough to their requests for help. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I saw that, yeah. You want the government's help now, whereas you don't want their regulations, which if you had them, you wouldn't be allowed to go down there in the first place and everybody would be alive, okay? Right? So I can't feel sympathy. I feel like that scene in Airplane where they do point-counterpoint. I feel sympathy for the kid. Yeah, but I'm like, Shayna, they bought their tickets. They knew what they were getting into. I say, let them crash. <laughs> and the thing is, the reason why they didn't hear from them, a massive failure happened and the whole thing imploded. Yeah. That just seems to be the obvious thing that happened. Yeah, because that, I don't know, everything I've read said that this carbon fiber hull could just uh, implode at a moment's notice. I mean, shame. There's like you know, To me, it's criminal. Okay, so have you seen any movies? <laughs> Well, that's the thing is, I think the reason why this is such a hot thing is people were hoping for a rescue so that you could see the movie. In like yeah. A well, you're not going to see the movie. I never saw uh, any of those Russian sub movies. I saw the, the non-Russian, the Crimson Tide, the Tony Scott movie. That was great. There's one called Kursk, uh, Kursk and it's uh, directed by Thomas Vinterberg. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? You haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Oh, I do want to see that one. And uh, yeah. of course, the classic. And I've seen, there's like a mini series version. I haven't seen that, but I have seen like the four hour version of Das Boot. They re released it in the 90s. And my yes. uncle and I went and saw it in the theater. And yes, I've seen, it's fantastic. Oh, the full, you saw the four hour one, right? Yes, yes. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. That's a great movie. But I mean, I, the last thing I ever want to do in life is be in a sub. Oh, I know. Because all, I mean, the submarine movies are claustrophobic enough for me. I find it creepy. Like, you know that movie, The Black Stallion? Yeah. Even though it's special effects and whatever back then, the part when the ship's going down and you see the whirlpool, that's enough for me. That's one of the scariest things I've seen in my life. Oh, okay. I think we're going to have to do a show on submarine movies okay. at some point. We got a new genre, all thanks to me and my opening. Um, okay, so let's put that aside. That was one of the gripes. Now good, I'm, I'm going to go into something else I'm upset about. Okay. And I'm not super upset, but it's annoying, and, and there's a big controversy. And, of course, our friend Jeffrey Wells, um, <laughs> Hollywood Elsewhere, he's been all over it. But you know, Oh, is what? this the French connection? Yeah, and it, but it's gone beyond him, and a lot of people are upset about it. Um, and have you read about this? I have. I want you to fill me in a little bit because I'm. I've seen some headlines, but I didn't really delve into it because I don't know. Everyone was complaining. I just didn't have the time. So give me, give me the ground, the the facts on the ground. The Criterion Channel is doing a feature um, this month, and it's focused on the method actor. Right. And one of the films they included was French Connection. So you know a lot of uh, film types are out there uh, watching these movies on Criterion, it's a good chance to go. And even if you've seen a movie a thousand times, it's kind of fun when Criterion yeah. does these series, you, you could go and you watch them. And so the French Connection is on there. And, you know, an astute viewer of the movie noticed that there's like six seconds edited out of the film. And huh. the movie has 
fallen into the hands of the Disney overlords. Okay. Through various like purchases of like, you know, like mm-hmm. Fox's film. I think that's right. a Fox movie um, from back in the day, 20th Century Fox. And so apparently right now, any copy streaming of the French Connection is this copy and it's missing six seconds. And it's a scene where um, Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman, is talking yeah. to his partner, Roy Scheider, and he refers to uh, certain people as the N-word. Okay. And they have cut that out. And, okay, so who, the question, there's a couple of questions. Who who authorized this? Did the right. director, the, you know, William Friedkin, did he have any say in this? Did he authorize this? Is he still alive? He is. Okay. Yep. Um, or is this like a Disney, somebody said, you know, oh, well, you know, we got to cut this out because- this is the problem, right? And a lot of people who have a lot of big memories from back then, originally seeing it, they felt that critics were aware of Popeye yeah, Doyle. how problematic that was. And that's part of the point. Yeah, how racist he was. And so the idea was, well, he was a racist cop. Now, you know, he still was somebody that is the protagonist of the film. And you, you root for a guy who is a little bit controversial. And flawed. And, and flawed. Yeah. And it also adds to the fact that, you know, they were trying to go for the realism of uh, the cops, which because the real story of the French Connection is the guy that his character is based on. They ended up actually stealing a lot of the drug money <laughs> and, uh, and you know, for themselves. Right. So, and then there's actually, yeah. So they're not good cops to begin with. This is almost like a uh, Hayes Code kind of thing where you can't show a cop being racist, right? Right. And so, you know, it's interesting is that some of that story makes its way into the um, Sidney Lumet movie, Prince of the City. Right, right, right. Um, which I mentioned because, uh, sadly, we lost actor Treat Williams to a, an accident, a motorcycle accident, a few weeks ago. And, and yeah. his performance in that movie is so amazing. It's one of the great films of the 80s. But there is like a sort of side touch into the um, the real aspect of the French Connection story. But, right. but anyways, purists are saying that like this was the movie and – now you're changing it. So what? So you have a better perspective or, or a better impression of Popeye Doyle's character because right. you don't know that he's racist to that degree? Yeah, that's really... So people are all up in arms about this. Well, yeah. What's Disney saying? Does anyone... It's one of those things where somebody made a, a, a rash decision, and I think that they're not thinking about context and history and i think it speaks to a bigger thing which i want to tie in to this other brief thing okay for i want to ask just if you happen to know how many minutes into the film this cut happens i feel like it's pretty early on because he goes in and he busts up a bar what in harlem and i think it's like tied into that okay i'm just curious so people could check their copies if they well older copies have it yeah okay so if you've got a blu-ray it's probably got it this ties into a bigger problem of what's happening with these um, super corporations owning everything and the, uh, yes. the CEO of Warner's uh, Comcast there, the guy that's kind of messing up HBO. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, yeah. he- <laughs> Zaslav. All, he laid off all of the higher-ups at Turner Classic Movies. Yes. And so basically, they're kind of phasing that out, I guess, and big filmmakers are- 
up in arms and are reaching out personally to this guy and saying, you got to oh. restore these people. And it's because these, you know, <laughs> these small moves now have reverberations at the end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is why I'm going to segue into my last little uh, fun nugget. Before <laughs> Your we get last the rant for the day. <laughs> well, is because there's a movie that came out this past weekend that did not do well at the box office. Oh, really? I, I haven't heard about this. It's called The Flash. What's that? Yeah, it's, it's like a superhero movie. Okay, yeah, I haven't heard <laughs> you know, of it. We talked about it on the last program, and we kind of <laughs> said we didn't think we were going to watch it. Well, guess what? I saw the movie. What? I saw, You know I saw the movie, so I'll stop it. Um, yeah. I'm still shocked. Well, no, because it was a rainy weekend here, and nobody, there was nothing happening here, and nobody's doing it. And I live in Vermont. There's nothing much going on in a rainy <laughs> summer weekend in Vermont. Right. So you figured, no, why not? Yeah, I went by myself. I went to Albany, which is two hours away. They had an IMAX theater there. There's like one of these huge, that's regal, like 20,000 seat cinemas. Like they have like a whole bunch of auditoriums and they also have an IMAX. Um, I knew going in that it was not a big, huge, giant, full-screen IMAX like the one I usually go to in Reading, Massachusetts. Right, it's IMAX. It's a IMAX. And I was kind of curious, like, well, I haven't, I've only been in the big one in recent years, so what's a IMAX? So I go, and here's the thing, and this is why I'm, I'm saying all this, because this is what I think is the problem and why a movie like this didn't do well. So I go to a matinee show, all right, on a Saturday morning, it's like eleven yeah. fifty in the morning is the show, and it opened to the Friday the day before. Yes, and it's in the IMAX. Okay, so I say one for you know the the movie, right? right. And she's like going you know put putting some uh, fingers to work on the buttons, and then she's like, okay, that's twenty two dollars. <laughs> I thought it was like she thought I had a second person with me. What you got to be kidding me? And I'm like twenty two dollars. <laughs> It's at the matinee show, one adult, $22 to go to Limax. That is insane. I was like, you know what? Whatever. This is it. I'm, I'm here. That's that's the price <laughs> I pay. Right? That's insane. Wow. I go in and I have a tick. I had to buy like a, a seat, but there was plenty of seats. So I got to pick my seat right. right from the computer. You got to have to pick your seat for your $22. I go in and I'm looking at this screen. And it really, like, I've been, there's a big theater up north in Vermont. They call it the T-Rex Theater. And then there's also, like, a, a half an hour earlier than the Albany, this place in Saratoga Springs. They've got their own big premium format screen. Right. This IMAX screen it was absolutely no bigger than the uh, the one in <laughs> Saratoga Springs that was not an IMAX. <laughs> and I would have paid, like, $11 at the Saratoga right. Springs in a half hour less of my time. Oh, so, like, when I think uh, about this, and the movie was maybe a third full, all right? So, right. I was like, okay, so a couple things. One, there isn't as much interest for this movie. And two, like, if it's like this kind of film, you've been burned if you live in this area and go spend $22 a ticket at IMAX. No kidding. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, because it, it, when I go to IMAX, it's usually 15 per That's person. what it costs at Reading, and yet I'm getting the full screen laser, yeah. like the best. And Absolutely, I had yeah. to pay $7 more for less. And that's a problem, IMAX. Yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. And so to me, that is not a story that I've heard about why this film didn't perform well. But I think that you're like... Most of its money did come from premium screens. Well, of course, because think about it, right? It made only $55 million in those three days. But at $22 <laughs> <Shocking>. a pop, <laughs> it's not really that many... 
tickets sold. It's just shocking. Fifty-five million. I, I, I was when you told me it had bombed. I thought, ah, okay, I'll see. And I googled, and I was just shocked by how badly it bombed. Like it is a major disaster. It's on like uh, John Carter level. You know, back in the fall, I think it was when Ezra Miller was having all of their problems, and that was making waves in the you know the, the media was capturing that story, and. They had some questionable behavior and various antics. I remember thinking, well, geez, this studio probably can't release this movie because who's going to see it? Right. Yeah. But they, you know, thought, well, time goes on and all these superhero movies. And I do think that to some degree, that was a factor. I don't know how much of a factor, but, you know, there's a lot of people that probably said, I can't be putting my money to that. Well, but I also think that. A lot of people just weren't even aware of that, right? And because it's, you have to sort of follow the celebrity news to be aware of that. And then, but I, I think it's just that, you know, people go to Marvel movies still just kind of because. Yeah, but they don't necessarily do that with DC. That's my point. They don't do that with DC at all. And yeah, like that Flash TV show just ended a few months ago. After eight years. So the fans have had a Flash TV show for eight years, and now there's a movie with a different actor? Yeah, and I don't know if that, you know, again, this goes back to our earlier discussion on our last episode about these superhero movies and how vested are people who go to those movies really are in the comics. I think that, again, the studios, the powers that be, I feel like they've convinced themselves that kids of all ages and adults are nonstop comic book uh Right. readers but i bet you these same brain trusts don't even look at statistics to see what comic book sales are but people go to these marvel movies they just don't go to these dc movies well this is a bigger question that they don't also answer and i haven't heard this talked about but the fact is is that dc many now it's many years ago boy it's like you know we're talking like 10 15 years ago they took a, a turn onto the Zack Snyder verse where yes, and- he, he did that Superman movie, which was terrible, I thought. It was awful. And they kept on building on that, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. And and they and they still haven't let it go. The Flash movie still is tied into that. And now they have two more of these orphan films coming out this year. Which ones are those? Uh, I think Blue Beetle and uh Aquaman 2. Okay, so I saw while I was in IMAX, I saw the trailer for Blue Beetle. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have zero interest in seeing that movie. (laughs) I really just don't want to see it. And I really feel like it's so weird. These comics, to me, they're all the same as far as films, but yet they treat them like, I understand where DC wants to do something different than Marvel, but they're not doing different enough. Well, they did with Joker and the Batman. Yeah, but that's, here's the thing. So, Going into the way that Batman was treated until these movies, right? Where now Batman's yeah. mixed in with actual people with superpowers. The appeal for me anyway, and I think a lot of fans with the Nolan Batmans and the Tim Burton Batmans and even the, la- the latest Batman is, it was always parked in a universe where there was nobody with superpowers. Right, right, right. There's people with gadgets, but not powers. Yeah. And yeah. so I like that idea of it because then you can kind of say well in some weird way this is reality it's realistic yeah it's it's reality adjacent <laughs> perhaps whereas 
but the other thing I think is multiverse fatigue. You know, I watched this film. Um, it starts out like it's funny. I, I there's a movie I think that the guys, the the two brothers that do uh, like Avengers and stuff. What were the the Russo brothers? Yeah, they made some movie for what Netflix or something. The Gray Man. Not the Gray Man. There was some other movie that came out recently. I and it was it was supposed to be some big action extravaganza. It's supposed to be absolutely terrible. Didn't it have Gail Godot in it? And she's like a spy. Oh, yes. That was uh, Red Notice with Ryan Reynolds and The Rock. Didn't the Russo brothers do that too? I They may have produced it. I don't think they directed it. Well, whoever the director was, they I guess there's something about... I didn't watch the movie, but apparently... I did. He wanted to open this film much differently, a little slower paced with some character development and setting things up differently. And the studios shot him down and said, you need to get to the action right away because basically their algorithms said that people will tune out after the first few minutes if there isn't all sorts of action. And I thought, you know what? That's the problem. These, this is it. The algorithm is driving these decisions and movies don't stand a chance when you're worried about somebody tuning out in the first two minutes. Yeah, that might be true, but you're losing a lot of cinematic possibilities. (laughs) Absolutely. It's very limiting. And then you and and then, you know, the other thing is Red Notice isn't good. Like it could have been a fun action comedy and it isn't. Yeah, I have no desire to see it. (laughs) And, and, you know, I've been talking for years about algorithm movies. Right. And this is the perfect example. It's an actual algorithm influencing the movie. And it's so many of these movies just feel like they're coming out of the same factory. I don't know how in the near future, but soon things like ChatGPT will be good enough to handle the duties of making films like that. Well, there's certainly it's certainly good enough already to work with as a collaborator on developing ideas, structure, story, character, backstory, stuff like that. It's I've used it for writing screenplays, and it uh, it's incredibly useful. It's it's a it's a great collaboration partner. It gives you feedback, and uh, it's not super creative. It's not really coming up with stuff on its own. But if you feed it good stuff, it uh, processes it. Well, Teal is the ghostwriter of Red Notice. I am. I wrote Red Notice, me and ChatGTP. <laughs> okay. So anyways, I saw this movie. I, I, you know what? I, I, it, again, the, the, the thing I was mentioning about Red Notice, so it opens up with this whole 15-minute super action sequence with that whole mega destruction and everyone's in jeopardy and you're starting to count up how many people died as a result of this yes. nonsense. And I was like, this movie's a bag of crap and I'm going to hate it. And it, it quickly turned into something that I found an interesting story. And then eventually we get to Michael Keaton's Batman, which I enjoyed. But then as somebody pointed out later, as far as the box office, is that, you know, generations of kids and people who are early grownups have no affiliation with Michael Keaton's Batman and no love for it. Well, uh, yeah, because those movies are really, really old and they didn't age well either. Burton's film, I mean, for some strange reason, the second movie, which I never liked, has a gained a cult following. Batman yes, Returns. it has. But his had a little bit of that sort of comic booky, 
like the way things used to be made versus yes, how they are exactly. now. Uh, one thing I think that they made a mistake with this Flash when he goes back and he's in this alternate universe and he goes like, you know, to see Batman stuff, Gotham City should have looked like it did in those you know, maybe a revamped version of it, but it had nothing to do. It looked more like the Gotham City of um, his current world. Oh, so they didn't have different Gothams. By the way, you can give me spoilers because I've gotten all the spoilers. I know all the cameos. I don't care. Again, it's a movie that like I came out like, you know, I had a good time, but I've also forgotten it. And everyone else just forgot to see it in the first place. The thing that I thought about most was the fact that I spent $22 and it was only one ticket. <laughs> Not to mention your drive. Yeah, but that's just, you know, that's the territory. Again, a couple of weeks ago, right after we taped our show, I went to Boston and had an amazing time seeing Boogie Nights in 70 millimeter. Oh, yeah. And now there's, I was like just so struck by the way movies were made back then. This movie was clearly not going to be a big box office movie. And this guy had not proven himself as a director. He made one right. film and yet here he is. He got a chance to make this film. It has that very go for broke style where it's, oh, it's, it it's got way too many excesses, etc. There's stuff that definitely you could have used a rewrite and kind of cut stuff out. But I love the fact that this guy's like, I may never get to make another movie again. So I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to make it this way. <laughs> I actually saw that movie uh, at a screening where he was there to talk about it afterwards. I think you told me about that. Yeah, I've told you about it. But uh, he definitely, I got the impression from that that he was definitely going for broke. And hey, I, I can, if I can put this in the movie, I'm going to, even though it might just be showy. And, uh, you know, some of those, uh, like there's one really long take that he just thought he did because he thought it was cool. Yeah, and now, of course, because he is a great filmmaker, he moved beyond that, and now he's very purposeful. Like, when he makes yes. a movie, you know, he he knows why he's doing every shot. But, you know, in 70 millimeter, it's just like the whole movie, it, I, 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 it's, always, it's always hard to describe because something mental goes on when you're watching these yeah. films. It's almost like you get sucked into the movie in a different way, even though you think you may be watching it no different than any other film that you'd be watching in the right. theater. I, I really noticed it at the pool party towards the beginning. Because of the sharpness and the brightness, you really can tell like all these other things happening on in the background. Oh, cool. That were very fascinating. And the people that I saw it with, my friends um, and his friend, they were just really fascinated all these details because you're used to seeing this movie. If you're a fan, I've seen it so many times at home, but you're seeing it home. Yeah. And even if you have a big TV, it's not a lot like seeing it on a big screen. That is the case. I have a big TV and I still would prefer the theater for most things. You know, you know, things with like projectors and like being able to like, if you only have, you have to have so much light to be able to throw a big image. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, if you take your screen and you and you shorten it so that it's smaller and brighter, like, to get that brightness and sharpness against your projector, it might have to come down in size. Yeah. Well, because it's 70 millimeter and it's such a big exactly. thing, this theater was able to open up their screen to the biggest possible. Oh. And it makes a difference so that they're not having to, because I don't think a lot of people understand that these things get masked, like they mask right, right, yeah. the screen and the curtains so that it fits whatever size they're sh showing it. So this thing was just projected huge and it, it was a lot of fun. But uh, anyways, boy, that's a half hour of uh, fun <laughs> stuff. And we didn't even get into talking about the main yeah. 
I told you. I know. Well, but now I'm not sure what we're talking about anyway, so I'm kind of letting it turn over to you, and you tell me what we're going to talk about for the rest of the program. Okay, what we're going to talk about is the big news. What, did they found the ship? The, the submersible? No. No. Oh. no. The big news is that you finished the BFI challenge. All 264 films that made up the BFI 250 critics' greatest films of all time. I've yep, seen all, all 264. Now, how many new ones did you have to watch i didn't you know it's funny i didn't know you'd ask that question i don't know i'd have to <laughs> add that up but i i i want to say in a very rough thing i probably had to see at least 120 240 movies okay and <laughs> i mean it's just insane to me that you did this uh <laughs> <laughs> because how i mean you had several movies going at once but you just how did you choose what you were going to watch next it, it really you know what sometimes like for instance if it was a really hard movie to locate and as i was getting down the list there was a couple movies that i'm like i yeah. don't know if i'm going to be able to find these uh there was one for instance this film um <laughs> my brain is hurting already from all these <laughs> movies is the quince tree sun oh yeah it's a documentary about a painter who's trying to paint this quince tree. And he has a whole meticulous style of how he paints. And the lighting has to be just right. And he does all these amazing things where he he takes a little paintbrush and he puts these little uh, flicks of paint on different leaves of the quince tree. And he's got this whole thing where he's set up these ropes and a little pendulum and all this stuff. And and like, it looks so scientific. And you're like, what the hell is this guy doing? And somebody finally like, you know, is visiting him and asks him (laughs) about this. And the whole thing is, is that he is explaining how limited time, especially if the weather doesn't cooperate, which it wasn't this season while he's trying to paint it, in that every day the tree goes from peak ripeness to starting to die and he needs to mark with all with all his lines and everything he has there, his sight vision. He's created like a, a sort of line of sight. The white denotes how far the leaves have dropped. <laughs> so he can see because he set up these lines. He knows right. how much it's dropped. It's like insane. So this is a fascinating documentary. I don't know if it's one of the greatest yeah. of all time, but it's not available. You cannot find it. I looked everywhere and i was going to resort to buying like a a a, a south korean dvd yes i saw that on ebay but i wasn't quite sure it said there was english subtitles but the question you you don't know right (laughs) that was my that was my backup and then i mean youtube didn't have it and i found that was how i got to see the hour in the furnaces um and and mind you there's still probably 20 or so minutes because that's one of those films that because it doesn't really exist in a restored copy that's available you have many cuts out there so right the whole right. film is another good 20 minutes longer than i was able to see but what, are, what am i going to do um but this film didn't exist even there so i would every like few days or a couple weeks i would just think of different search capabilities right i found something on a facebook site and somewhere on a Facebook that you could access had the video. Oh, wow. And so when I found it, it was a Saturday morning. And I went downstairs and said to my wife, I will be back in two and a half hours. <laughs> and the reason was, is I couldn't risk 
that it suddenly, not being there. Yeah, I was yeah. like, it could be gone tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm watching it right now. <laughs> so that sometimes dictated how I watched a film. So that sounds like a kind of delightful curio from the list that may not be one of the greatest ever, but is kind of uh, it, it, not a miserable watching experience like, like some of these. I, I long, after watching, like one of the early ones I ever did was, was like, well, I got to watch the greatest film of all time. I got to watch the Jean Delmont. And after watching that, I knew, I knew. <laughs> that this list was suspect <laughs> and that that was very politically motivated. But what I was like, my, my gut said, well, there's all these classic films that I've always wanted to see. And it's about time that I say, I can't be embarrassed anymore that I haven't seen some of these. I'm going to see them all. And I bet you there's going to be some delights and some movies that I love. And there might even be some that would make my greatest personal list. And I did get all that from this experience. And so you went through and rated each movie out of the 264, right? Yes, I did. I, I, I went With on your a own one personal through, rating. I gave it a one through 10 and I was a little generous, right? So just in, in rating these, I kind of said, well, in the grand scope of cinema, I get why some of these are considered great. And if I also like them, right. I'm like, do I give it a 10? Whereas if say the movie came out this year and I was seeing it in the theater and I really liked it, I'm a little bit stingier. In a, in a first viewing when it just came out in giving something, say, a 10. Right. It, it, but 20 years on, if it's still holding up, then it's deserving of the 10. Like, here's yeah. a film I'd, I've seen it. Like, this is the best part, right? Uh, we haven't talked about a ton of movies that are on this list because I've seen them yeah. and I, wasn't, I didn't need to see them. These are really about what I hadn't seen. But here's a great example of John Ford's The Searchers. I understand right. why it's great. I get all that. I've seen it. It is a good movie. I'll give it a 10. However, it's not one of my personal favorites. Yeah, I like it. But I don't I don't know if it's necessary. Well, yeah, I mean, I, we could do a whole thing on The Searchers. It's a controversial film at this point. But but uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I don't know that it's even my favorite John Ford film. You know, he's got several entries on here, some I had never seen. And watching it, I mean... I know there are this, there's certain types of critics or, or scholars or whatever that like what they like for whatever reasons. But, you know, as, as things evolve, I am okay with other movies getting a chance. And I feel like there is an affection for a lot of films so that we won't forget the old days. But anyway, I feel like a lot of these older films, they just don't hold up for a ton of reasons. And I, I look and say, are they, were they even that great to begin with? And I just don't see it. So, were there? Did you rewatch anything? I didn't really have time to rewatch anything. No, I mean, this has taken me six months to watch the ones I've seen. I mean, that's a lot, you know. <laughs> it's an insane number of movies to do in six months, especially when some of them are ten hours long. That's the problem, right? There are there are some films. They're short films, like twenty minutes, forty minutes, something an hour. I was like, those are great. I sprinkled a bunch of those in when I could so that I yeah. could just get the volume in. But then, I mean, out one is what, 13 hours? Is 13 hours, yeah. And, and by that's... the way, that's amazing. I love that movie. It's a 10-star <laughs> film. Um, and then there's this uh, Chinese documentary, West of the Tracks, and that's nine hours. And I'd say half of that movie is really, really good. And the other half is just okay, with the last two and a half hours to me being unnecessary. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So were the, were, those were the longest films? Okay. So the longest films, yeah, Out One, 
uh, Showa, which thankfully I'd seen that last yeah, fall. Yeah, you had just watched <laughs> it a, a, a few months Showa. before. Yeah. By the way, Showa is amazing, and I really am highly recommending that. That's an experience. It's definitely one of the best films of all time and greatest. So that Our Furnaces is like four hours. There's Brighter Summer Day, which I was just blew me away. That's four hours. West of the Tracks, nine and a half. Uh, then, of course, there's our friend, uh, Bellatar, who... Oh, yeah. So when we when it was just going to be 100 movies before they threw this 250 at me, <laughs> Satan Tango, seven hours and 20 minutes, was one of the last films that I watched to complete the 100. Oh, okay. And then, uh, and, and so I watched that over like a month. But some newsflash, you just recently... Took the Satan Tango Challenge. I, I took the Satan Tango Challenge, and I, I, w- I had been thinking about it even before this list came out. You had. I, I had been doing a little research on long films, and people said this was a masterpiece, and I had decided that uh, Bellatar prefers that uh, people watch it in one sitting, so I decided I was going to try to do that, and I just did. Over, the, over this past weekend, I, I watched uh, all seven hours and 20 minutes of Satan Tango in one sitting. That is amazing. I did pause to go to the bathroom and get a snack and things like that, but otherwise I watched it straight through. Yeah, and I mean, even if you were somebody that's seeing in the theater, there are a couple of natural breaks and you would have intermissions and stuff. There's two intermissions and then there's also chapter breaks. And so... Uh, if I was recommending it to somebody to watch, I would tell them uh, where the time markers are for those intermissions. Look, I think that's pretty cool that you did that, um, but I also think it's kind of nuts <laughs> that you did that. It's kind of nuts, but it also uh, there are themes in the film that I think come across differently if you're watching it in one sitting. It, the film has a lot to do with time and how time is perceived, uh, how it's accelerated, how long it takes to walk from one town to the next, or even just across the muddy road, right? So there, And then it sort of starts to fold in on itself with time, too, in really interesting ways. And having that experience of recalling something that had come earlier, it plays on your memory in a really interesting way uh, that I think... I think it adds to sort of the thematic resonance of the film, right? Is by the end of it, I had been through a marathon and I was exhausted and, but still like uh, one of the last scenes uh, had me laughing (laughs) and you know, the scene I'm talking about, but you know, the other thing is the takes are so long. I, I think the first shot is maybe 10 minutes of just some cows walking through a village it's incredible part of it is that each shot is so precisely choreographed that you trust what's going on it doesn't just feel like a bunch of random shots or or even just one random shot right it it, it feels like there is a high level of control and confidence in every shot that gives me confidence in watching the film that I can trust the filmmaker is going to take me somewhere interesting and meaningful. Also surprising to me is uh, that this film was really intricately plotted. Uh, It it has a very uh, intricate story and narrative and complex characters. So it's involving, but just in a very 
different way. I'm glad that I had watched two Bellatar films before this because it sort of prepared me for it. But in any event, that was my challenge over the last week. And uh, I watched a few other films on the list, too, that you recommended. Bellatar had two films in the 250. Satan Tango was in the the top 100. Uh, a little bit yeah. further down uh, was this other film that you you watched before Satan Tango is Workmeister Harmonies. And yes. it's one of the last films that I watched uh, to complete the challenge. And I enjoyed that one as, as well. Um, and I know that I think that you enjoyed the Bellatar experience so much that I think you would rather hold off on a big discussion of Bellatar into another episode. I do want to watch some of the completionist Bellatar films. It's really these three films, uh, Satan Tango, Turin Horse, and uh, Workmeister Harmonies are really the Bellatar canon, sort of. Uh, it did several films before that. I've really been trying to track down this thing he did for Hungarian television in the 80s. Have you heard about this? I think maybe you dropped a mention. I may have dropped a mention. He did Macbeth in two takes. Now, now that's so, you know, it's funny you mentioned Macbeth. Okay, so even though I finished the 250 challenge for the critics, there's a director's challenge, their, their top 100, and yeah. the critics, because there's less of them and it doesn't take as many to get on their list because of, you know, the numbers, Right. there are differences. And there's like a whole bunch of films and their 100 that don't make the BFI to uh, 100. But then there's like, I think there's like 11 or 12 total movies from their 100 list that aren't on the BFI 250 at all. That is really astounding. Do you have some of those? Yeah, like The Conversation. Does not make the 250 at all. Wow. Eraserhead. Wow. Antonioni's La Notte. Okay. This one that it, it, the Japanese Macbeth I'm watching. This is the only film that I have not completed. I got 50 minutes left is Throne of Blood. <laughs> Wait, so you're not actually done? Well, not with the director's 100. I got I got 50 minutes left. Oh, oh you mean on the director's yeah, list. Okay. Yeah, because Throne of Blood yeah, yeah. isn't on the critics. And yeah, I went right, after it. Right, so right. then there's this other movie that I watched. I thought I was going to get the 100 done of the directors too, but I just couldn't get through Throne of Blood yet is this uh, Iranian film, one best international film at the Oscars, I think 2012 for the, for the year 2011, yeah. was a separation. Heard it was great, dying to watch it. And I just saw it and it really, it, 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 to me, it's a powerhouse and it really blew me away. And it does so many things that movies in America don't do. But I just felt like there's so many interesting things that, that, that are going on with a story like this that it really floored me and i insisted you watch it <laughs> yes you insisted i watched it and i did a few days ago uh absolutely loved it i for some reason i resist this type of film uh based on the descriptions that's what's the same with me i thought it was like oh it's an iranian couple's getting divorced i knew nothing of all the other stuff in the movie that was what i knew and i just somehow resisted it a, a movie about a divorce i just i'm not that interested in uh because i don't know like uh, there have been so many of those and it's just like a realistic naturalistic character piece i'm just not that thrilled by it but then you get into this thing <laughs> <laughs> but then you get into this thing and it, there are twists and turns and ups and downs and this is a story with a lot of plot and really intense character stuff and you know i 
I hesitate a little bit because I don't know much about Iranian culture. I, I, I just don't know a lot. Well, I do know this. Women don't have a lot of rights and say. Yes, I know that kind of stuff, but uh, so I don't. But there's a whole thing with the legal system in this, and I was thinking about this that if I watch American movies about the legal system, it totally gives me the wrong idea. Right? It's not how it actually works. The way it works in movies is not how it works in a courtroom. Uh, so I was wondering about how accurate this is, or how much it's sort of inflated for the movie, and then I remembered close up which is part documentary and actually does show these courtrooms. It's like almost the same thing. (laughs) And it's almost the same thing. And so that's shocking and fascinating to me that basically if there's a legal dispute between two people, you just go into a room and yell at each other while some guy tries to figure out who's lying. it's insane the process uh and then everyone's sort of got their own interest and there's lies and deceit and this the the i think she's 11 or 12 year old girl the daughter she's 11 though she looks older than 11 but she does look older than 11 but i think they say she's 11 uh she gives an amazing performance and i think in a way is kind of the center moral center of the film um but it's just fascinating to me that uh people are making films in this oppressive environment that critique it but also it's not a complete indictment of the system it's an examination of it and i think it's fair you know that this this woman is religious and makes decisions based on her piety and that's not looked at in a dismissive way in fact she's i i think kind of uh, in, supported by the film by the narrative yeah you know i'm getting this movie i feel like has so many enjoyable surprises for those who haven't seen the, the movie and of course until a couple weeks ago i had never seen it that i don't want to give anything away but here's what i really ultimately found fascinating is that the story that the director crafts if you're working within a system that's an oppressive system like iran you yeah. are going to be censored you can't do or say or tell certain kind of stories and as a matter of fact, because of the culture, even if you're telling a story and say a woman inside her home wouldn't have to wear her headdress. Right. You can't show that in the movie. You can't show that on film. However, he cleverly has one moment, if you remember, towards the end where she's putting it on from a distance. Yes. Um, and he, I think he probably got in trouble for that. But what he does is in order to critique that system or examine that system he has to tell a story that shows how the system works but do yes. it in a very documentary like unjudgmental style and if your government gets upset it's getting upset at the way they're being portrayed but if they're being portrayed honestly then they can only have themselves to be upset about well exactly and i think that's why i say it's not like an indictment necessarily because the film isn't making that argument it's really just showing it to us and saying draw your own conclusions everything that happens in the movie which is like a tragedy of multiple proportions is all because of the society that iran is and that's what the woman is trying to get out but like like under normal circumstances if you don't like stuff and if you have the means which it seems like this family does you would pack everybody up and you take the father who has Mm -hmm. dementia and he would go with and everything would be hunky-dory and yet 
in America, this story wouldn't fly because it seems like it would be written to like, oh, so we can have this story and like, why wouldn't you just take the dad or this or that? But in Iran, all of the things that happen in this movie are plausible because of the situation that everyone's under. (laughs) And it does a really good job of establishing that. And I think it's well thought out in terms of how it will be viewed by international audiences. Right, it's not made just for an Iranian audience. Uh, e- even even though there are things, and I think this is the case uh, with a lot of these films that you've been recommending from the BFI, uh, these international films, is that there's some things I'm missing in the films because I'm missing certain cultural knowledge. Yeah, I felt this a little with Bellatar. Like I don't know that much about Hungarian history. I know you know a little bit here and there, but I felt like there were certain cultural things that I can't quite get, but some of the films do a better job of letting me in than others. Yeah, there's also not knowing the languages, and of course, you're, you're relying on whatever the translations are. Some of the things yeah. that are being said, it, it, they might mean something different, and like comedy or jokes or you know sarcasm, all that stuff, it's tough on a viewer to watch these movies and quite get all of that. If you're not from that country. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's not much we can do about that other than try to be open-minded. And here's, you know, going back to Bellatar for a second, before we really get into that, I want to do some more research and find out what some of these things are that I'm missing. Right. But after watching a few films, I also uh, last night watched Where is Friend's House or Where is the Friend's House or Where is my Friend's House? Another... uh, Iranian film that's also on the list, right? Well, it's the same guy that directed Close Up. Yes. Yep. And he did another, he did three movies from the BFI. Um, Where's My Friend's House, Close Up, and then A Taste of Cherry. Oh, okay. Which I have not seen yet. But Where's Friend's House is fantastic. That's a simple story and it blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. Blew me away too. That kid was amazing. <laughs> the kid is amazing. It has, a, I was really fascinated by the whole thing with the uh, competing door makers that when he runs into the old guy, like that was so great. And also just, I mean, again, I'm looking at this through a foreigner's eye and I realized that, but these houses that they're living in and these villages are not something we see in America because people have been in these houses for hundreds of years. And so the idea, uh, I was like, why the whole thing about the doors? And then I realized that the door is really the one part of the house you need to fix every 50 years or so. Well, he has to come back to these villages that he was shooting these movies in because there's this massive earthquake that happens in Iran. And he was worried about these people that were in his movies and he went to go and find them. Oh, wow. So those are some of the other ones I want to watch of his. Yeah, very interesting stuff. So, I mean, here's the thing. There are so many of these hidden gems in here. And uh, there's also some hidden lumps of coal. And <laughs> yes, there are. I so, saw them. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've been through some of your uh, best and, and least favorite. I, uh, one question I have, and because I think we've sort of touched on this a little bit, is how has this whole experience changed you as a film watcher well i think it's definitely improved it because a lot of these films handle 
stories differently. That's, I think, why when critics have put these on the list, it's not that sometimes any of these is like, come on, you're kidding me. This is not right. better than another film. You know, and again, I still am upset that uh, Steven Spielberg's E.T. isn't on here because I just think that it's it's a classic. But yet you yeah. have to have a, a critic or a scholar that would put it on their top 10. And even myself, I don't think it's one of the 10 greatest films, but everybody's approaching this list differently. But one of the major themes, if I really just look at what the biggest theme through these 264 movies are, is that they all seem to be films that tell stories in a different way. In their own unique way, right? Yeah. Like, um, because I was thinking about this with Bellatar, that it's, I, I, you know, I haven't seen anybody else like Bellatar, right? And I mentioned that to you and you said, well, there's plenty of others on the list. <laughs> and there are. I'm looking at them right now. I have the list up. <laughs> th there are, but the thing is, those are as equally individual as Bellatar is. It's not like there's other people doing what Bellatar is doing. They're doing their own thing. Right, but at the same time, like there are these filmmakers, and again, it seems to be something that appeals to these critics. Uh, I was thinking of a film I didn't like, but it was one of the last films that I watched called uh, Flowers of Shanghai. Yeah. Ho, Ho Shao Shen is the director. And okay. he also directed another film on the list called City of Sadness. And what he seems to be very interested in, just like Bellatar, there are these very long takes. So I think Flowers okay. of Shanghai maybe has about 30 takes in the whole film. Wow, okay. And I, apparently, from what I've heard, it's a film that the way it was shot, the colors and the filtration in it, mm -hmm. the goldenish color, it's a texture that's very unique in theaters to see it on film. And it's never quite been able to be captured on digital. On digital. Interesting. The people that really love it are captivated seeing it in the theater. And one of the things it focuses on, so it's a um, it's a Shanghai, these flower girls, they're kind of uh, like uh, geisha girls. Okay. And there's like a whole thing in like the, it was this, it takes, takes place in the very late 1800s, early two early 1900s. Uh, so it's a certain place in time in Shanghai. And there's a whole kind of hierarchy and it really explains kind of the whole flower girl thing and how they can buy their freedom or how sometimes the lovers will marry them and all these other things. Oh, okay. But this is a film where a lot of the th things happen, happen off screen and are talked about. <laughs> okay in these long intricate scenes and then they cut to like another chapter and stuff has happened but that these scenes that he's giving you are scenes where the characters are talking about the stuff that happens and that is somewhat like city of sadness there's a lot right. of action that takes place in a way that you don't normally see in a film so it's showing you the in-between moments as opposed to the big events? It is. And then there's okay. a film called India Song, which is probably the weirdest of all of them. And it was directed and written by Marguerite Duras, who she wrote yeah. Hiroshima yeah. Yeah, And it's a film that recalls colonialism in India, in Calcutta, and it's at some kind of plantation-y mansion. And there are all these characters, um, including John Delmon there. She seems to always be, she was also in um, <laughs> that other strange one last year at Maribon. 
Yes. So she seems to really get into being in these very obscure films. <laughs> she is in it, and some other actors, um, Michael Lonsdale, who's great in Out One, he's in it. Okay. All these characters move around this mostly interior, but also sometimes exterior of this mansion. And there are narrators that are almost like as if they're watching this movie and in a sort of weird sort of poetic way are talking about the action and what these characters' involvement with each other is. And sometimes the actors themselves are talking and narrating the scene, but the actors never talk. Wow. It's kind of like last year at Marinbond, which, yeah. of course, the director of Hiroshima Mon Amour also right. directed that. So there's a lot yeah. of weird connections. And I see. What's his name? Alan Resnick. Yeah. yeah. And so Margaret Duras, she didn't make, I think she made like two movies, and this is one of them. And it is a really weird movie. I can't say I cared for it, but there is some interesting stuff going on. And I felt like the entire time I watched it that. Even though I don't think I'll ever like this movie, had I been able to be trapped in a theater and absorbed into it and not having to be able to like look away or go, when is this going to end? I might have gotten more out of it. Are there films on the list that maybe you watched in parts that you now want to go back to and watch a second time? There are several movies that I want to see, but I want to see them in the theater. And unfortunately, they're right, actually right. now now that I'm like hip to this BFI list and have seen these movies, I'm noticing certain uh, you know repertoire houses are showing these films and probably have been over the years. Right. And for instance, the Harvard Film Archive is doing a whole Ozu homage with a whole bunch oh. of new 35 millimeter prints, including new 35 millimeter prints of Tokyo Story. Oh wow! Okay. I want to see Tokyo Story in the theater. Then the Jean Estruche, who did The Mother and the Whore, yeah. in New York City at the Lincoln Film Center, they are showing a whole bunch of his movies, a whole retrospective, including a 4K restoration, full three hours and uh, 40 minutes, Mother and the Whore. And I would love to see that, but I just can't get to New York City to see it. But I want to see it in the theater. So that's great, though, is that you now have some uh, some goals. Yeah, and of course, if I can see daisies in the theater. <laughs> of course. No. Yeah. So, okay, going back to my original question, though, about how it's changed you. You said for the better. Has it made you, are you more open-minded, more patient, more, uh, are you approaching films in a different way? Because uh, uh, part of the reason I'm asking this is that in the middle of my Bellatar and, you know, watching these BFI films you would recommend it, uh, in the middle of that, I took a, a, a night off to watch Fast X. And, <laughs> okay, you know, because I thought, okay, I just want to see something blow up, right? But here's the thing. I could not make sense of the story of this movie. I did not understand what was going on from scene to scene. And it just, it seemed like they had a bunch of set pieces and just strung them together somehow. But I couldn't tell, like, how somebody got from one country to an act. Yeah, they seem to be unconcerned with it. It's sort of a very weird postmodernist movie where that whole series is not really focused on story after like the first two movies. Yeah, and so it was really, it was a very weird experience because it has all the trappings of a Hollywood movie, but it makes absolutely no sense. There's no real script there at all. And it's just... Uh, and so I thought that was an interesting counterpart. So I had no patience for that, but I had the patience for Satan Tango, 
Well, so after seeing these kind of movies, you was just asked, like, so how does it change me? Well, yeah. you and I have both seen this, and I think is a homework assignment for uh, listeners. Maybe the next episode, we want to talk about Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. And I think that most people would be afraid of the fact that it's three hours long. Well, three hours long didn't seem like anything to me after watching these movies. And I felt like the movie breezed by, and I was shocked at how fast it went. And it was it, does. And it's a, it moves along. It felt like it fit right into this BFI assortment because it's it's movie uh, storytelling in a much different way. Uh, maybe David Lynch is kind of a close cousin to the kind of storytelling it is. Yeah. But it's it's just like these directors. He's telling films in a different language than other you know filmmakers. And so that's really what it. And I think that that is part of what attracts critics to these movies is that they've seen so many of the st same story told over and over again that somebody coming at it with a fresh approach, even if it's maybe not a thousand percent successful, uh, at least is something new and different. And the novelty of that, I think, makes it go up the list a little bit. The filmmakers of the 70s, the people like the George Lucas and the Spielberg, you know, the yeah. people that created all these blockbusters. So Spielberg, right, they were heavily influenced on the masters of old. Like Spielberg, like John Ford was a big thing for him. Uh, yeah. Lucas, he loved a lot of the, uh, the Japanese films that were coming out. And... What's interesting is I feel like when these uh, studios, like, uh, you know, the people that are trying to create Star Wars and can't get any new movies off the ground, they miss right. one key component that was an inspiration for George Lucas, and that was this wealth of samurai movies, and that they right. should be looking at some of those. And one film really struck me out of this whole list. It's like one of those finds for me that's now like, it's just a staple of like, I think it's one of the great yeah. films. And that was A Touch of Zen. And when I watched this story, because it is so unique and interesting, though it takes its time, and the action scenes, while absolutely unforgettable and fantastic, take a really long time to show up. Right. The story, you could literally take this entire story, do a little reworking, transplant it, and it could make a fantastic standalone Star Wars movie. It could reignite a right. whole path of things. And it's just, there's no imagination going on as far as if they're going to steal from everybody, none of these people think about these classic films that they could dive into and get inspiration from. And I got lots of inspiration from these movies. <laughs> well, and it's, you know, it's the thing about people being worried about AI making movies is I don't see necessarily that the AI is going to do a worse job than uh, the Netflix algorithms. It, it might actually be better. I get that. A large part of entertainment is about putting out product and making money. And I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with that. Um, and I don't think every movie has to be like this 250 list. I would hate that. I was thinking of it sort of in terms of food, right? Like there's a lot of fast food. People enjoy that. That's like uh, your Marvel movie, right? Is essentially fast food. But sometimes you like to go to a restaurant where there that's not a chain restaurant that just has one chef doing something interesting. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about uh, some of these directors. Well, that's why even if they're not as popular services, you got to support things like the Criterion Channel. You got to support Turner Classic Movies. I mean, I have cable still and I don't watch Turner Classic Movies a lot. However, I use the DVR and 
they always on the weekends uh, overnight they do have weird cult movies that they show and they just had and I taped it because I saw that it was uh, going to be on they had a really great copy of one of my favorite campy movies The Apple um, what much better oh, yeah 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 you love The Apple and so uh, I watched <laughs> we watching The Apple because it's so great <laughs> um, wow it's so great it's a movie that came out in 1980 that tried to predict what things would look like in 1994 and all it did was it predicted what things looked like in 1982 two years later Xanadu <laughs> but uh, you know that's <laughs> but, uh okay so uh, one more question here okay on the on the BFI yep yeah. What is your advice to anyone who would undertake this challenge? I mean, you know, you gotta have to, you, you gotta be someone that can <laughs> be good at finding things because some of this movies are going to be hard. Well, no, yeah, okay. And I wouldn't think that. Look, I, you know, I have some resources. I could find some of this stuff. Great place to start. Get yourself the Criterion Channel, and yep. you're going to be able to knock off a whole bunch of films on the list. And you know what? I've seen. I mean, I'm taking for granted that I've seen a lot of movies that. Uh, you know, I thought were staples, but you may, you know, if you've never even seen things like Days of Heaven or Barry Lyndon, like, you know, the Godfather movies. Like, right. And we, and we haven't really talked about those, but those, you got to see them. Those are all on the list. Yeah. So would you suggest somebody start, just sort of grab things at random or start at number one and work their way down or how? Right. That would be interesting if somebody actually went in order. Yeah. You could do that. Uh, that's an interesting way to go. Because like... You know, certainly if you can't have time to do do like, say, the 250 or even the 100, right. start with like, well, geez, this is what critics gave is the top 10. but And this is what the, the list is, right? Number one, Jean Delmon. It's total crock. Yeah. Vertigo. I w it's not my number one, but I mean, that's a big film for a lot of people. Yeah. Citizen Kane. I think it's amazing. Uh, Tokyo Story. It was a first for me watching it, and I thought it, it blew me away. Um, In the Mood for Love, Wong Kar Wai, it's not my bag. I mean, I liked it, but I don't, right. I don't know what the big deal is. 2001 Space Odyssey, I think it's the best of all time. Beau Travai, Claire Denise, I didn't like it at all. And I'm, even if you did like it, to say it's one of the top 10 greatest films right. of all time, you're kidding yourself. Get out. Mulholland Drive, I happen to think it's one of the top 10 films of all time. So, I mean, I'm happy with that. And then <laughs> Man with a Movie Camera, um, you know what? The only thing is, is that I think it was amazing seeing it with the score that was fairly recent that was amazing. Right. If you watched it without the score, it would be cool, but not as cool. Okay. Good point. And then Singing in the Rain. I mean, if you haven't seen Singing in the Rain, that was, I, I picked on you at the beginning five years ago because you hadn't seen it. Yes. You've seen and it And I saw it. I think that's a classic. So, you know, that's an interesting mix, but it doesn't really give you the full impact and you have to kind of go further to really get a better sense of what are some of the great films. But I would su suspect that most of the films you had already seen were in the top 50 to 75. Well, okay. So that's what, that's what started me on this. I, w I go... And I'm like, let me look at this top 100. I bet you'll be there's a few movies I haven't seen, but there's a lot I have. And there was like 50 movies I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen yeah. half the list. And some so. I had never even heard of. Like, it's Satan Tango. I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> there's a whole bunch of them that I, that I only know of because you've told me about them at this point. Yeah. I mean, there's a movie, and it's really good. I don't know if I put it in my top 100 but rainer werner fassbender's fear eats the soul it's oh yes a remake of uh douglas sirk 
movie. Oh, I didn't realize that. And that movie appears in the top 250, but somehow his version gets a higher mark. Um, but uh, that's great because the sort of subtext of that film is it reminds you that even in the very early 70s, the racism that ran rampant in Germany never went away. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and that is what's fascinating because you have characters that are older now but that they were like maybe 18 20 or whatever when world war ii happened right and they still are steeped in what happened like they like some of them didn't mind hitler so much right and right. so that's Absolutely. a fascinating thing that's in that this film so i do recommend that for people to watch that they've never seen so we're gonna have a whole list on the website at some point at some point of your rankings and some more delving into this. Now, are there any other films from the BFI that you feel like are an absolute must watch? Again, if I looked at what I, I, I did a ranking of my top 10. Yeah, let, let's hear your top 10. And, you know, that. look, it's like, I mean, you know, and given days, it could change. And I don't know if right. this would be the 10 I'd submit if I got a chance to do the list because it's very canon. Right. It's very like I'm a white male canon. You might want to throw uh, E.T. in there. Mind you, this is not. This is my list based on their list. Right, yes. Okay, it, so yes. I'm only ranking the films out of this list, what I thought. So I, yeah. I, my top 10 from their list would be 2001, Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Mulholland Drive, Tokyo Story, The Wizard of Oz, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, Jaws, Singing in the Rain. Very interesting list. Okay. Now, a movie that might have made it, though I'm trying not to put two of the same director in there, The Conversation might have made it, but somehow <laughs> that's not on the critics list, but it is in the <laughs> director's so weird. list. Because, you know, I like The Godfather, but the Coppola film I've seen the most is The Conversation. And the Coppola film I've seen the most is The Godfather. Okay. Yeah. So movies that like I had never seen before that really impacted me and are high on this list... Uh, Tokyo Story, that I had never seen. Man with a Movie Camera, Brighter Summer Day. Ikiru by oh, Kira yeah. Kurosawa. Yeah. Um, West Indies, Fugitive Saves of Liberty, that comes in at 38 on my list. Nice. Uh, Late Spring by Ozu, that comes in high. Um, Ordet by Carl Dreyer. So there's a bunch that you saw for the first time that are going in your top 100. Yes, Ugetsu, uh, and then also Sancho the Bailiff, both by Kenji Mitsuguchi. Absolutely insane. A Touch of Zen. So a lot of these Japanese films are great. Uh, Bresson's A Man Escaped. Also Bresson's L'Argent. Which I'm about to watch. And then uh, Max Ophel's the, Mata, the Earrings of Madame Duh. That was amazing. Um, these are all films I had not seen. Just because they're in this top 100, this is based on the BFI. I would take certain movies out because, like, for instance, if I gave this film a 10, I, like, sorted it by all my rankings. And right. so I am married to the fact that if it's a 10, it has to be. It's kind of got to be there. Yeah, yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily have it in my top 100. So I gave 106 films on this list a 10. And I think that's pretty good. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a huge, not quite half, but a huge portion of it. And 143 in total got either a 9 and 10, which means, in my opinion, if it's an 8, that's a good that's a good movie, but it yeah. doesn't mean it should be belonging in a top 250. So Now, did anything get below a 5? Yes. A few films. Okay. I've got a top 10 of the lowest. <laughs> yeah, let's hear that. Number 10 of the worst, Lalante, Jean Vigo, 
Um, it's a French movie, beloved mostly because the guy died. Uh, he was he got sick with pneumonia editing the film, and then he died. So he never got okay. to make another movie. But it was not that good. The headless woman, Lucretia Martel. Somehow these critics love Lucretia Martel. Have given her three slots in this thing, and none of her films are that good. Pierre Pasolini's Gospel According to Saint Matthew. I did not like it. Uh, Derek Jarman's Blue. While it's interesting, I mean it's a blue screen <laughs> and some voices. No. <laughs> How long is that? It's only like an hour and 15 minutes or something. Okay. It's too long. Um, Lynn Ramsey's Morvan Kala. Oh, my God. What a terrible movie that was. <laughs> I mean, that's not even, that, that should not belong in the conversation. And I would honestly, I everybody that like put that on their list, I would not invite them back. Um, <laughs> there's this uh, Russian piece of propaganda called Earth that was supposed to be about how great uh, collectivism is. And we all know how that turned out to be. Um, and then the movie itself kind of went off in its own direction. And it just kind of was really focused on nature and beauty. But it's just not that good. Uh, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. You know how much I hated that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> um, then this uh, Lisbon uh, film by uh, Pedro Costa, this movie called In Vanda's Room. Three hours of uh-huh. darkened rooms of a junkie, and it's played by like the actual junkie, and so it's a mixture of documentary and like kind of reimagined realism. I found it very, not only just deplorable to watch, but it felt exploitative. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty good bottom of the barrel list. Oh, I got three, three more. Da- daisies. Daisies, as you know, we I know, hate yeah, that. We, we discussed Daisies. And then Wavelength, which is that 40-minute movie, one take with a really loud, obnoxious wavelength sound going on it and nothing else. And I don't understand. Like, sure, I guess there's experimental movies. That's interesting. But best of, no. How did they get a 40-minute take? They must have had a giant mag. It's like uh, stop motion. So it was like, it's not like one, it seems like one take, but it was shot every few seconds or whatever. Okay. So if there was a need to change the mag, they would probably change it while it wasn't filming. Right, right, right. Okay. And then the worst of the worst, sorry, he's he's on there for many other films, and that's fine. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Histories du Cinema. This is ridiculous. It's not a movie. It's a video for TV. And just because it may have been shown at a Cannes Film Festival once, that doesn't count. And it should not count. And it should not be anywhere in there. It took a spot from somebody, though the movie that it took its place probably isn't something I'd like. So, <laughs> anywho, that's the worst. <laughs> okay well this is fantastic so we will be probably dipping into the bfi as we go as we uh i watch some of these films and maybe we go down a little detour on a certain director uh yeah. because i think this has opened up a lot of avenues for you in terms of some more uh film exploration well now i think that you're seeing the wisdom of some of these because you're watching the ones i recommended and you're liking yeah. them and you're like whoa and i think as you see some of them we'll look at bellatar for instance now you want to do a show on bellatar and that's fine yeah I think we should. absolutely yeah I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with bellatar so anyways this is the end of this long episode and <laughs> um most mostly my fault as always because i just want to cram in so many things i know and i told you i know i told you i know imagine if we actually spend time talking about bellatar <laughs> <laughs> um but uh you know in a couple of weeks i don't know maybe we'll have uh Indiana Jones, maybe we'll talk about that, but maybe it'll suck and we won't have anything to talk about, but we do need to talk about Bo is Afraid. 
we will be talking about Boa's Afraid. And if you are a really wanting to go on a deep dive on Boa's Afraid, I suggest watching the film The Wolf House. Oh, because of the animators from The Wolf House did that segment. Did that segment, and Ari Aster loves this Wolf House movie. All right. I will, just as my homework for what as we get ready to do Bose Raid, I will watch The Wolf House. And I probably, I've already watched the first 40 minutes of Bo is Afraid a second time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a story that we don't have time for. But um, needless to say, my 11-year-old watched this Bo is Afraid. <laughs> he came downstairs at about 35 minutes in and just thought whatever was happening on screen was interesting. He threw his glasses on, he sat down and he watched it. And then he, of course, wanted to go back and watch the part he had missed, what he missed we watched yeah. it again and i just realized that there's so many details and it's really fun to re-watch this movie afterward yeah i do kind of think i'm gonna give it a rewatch. it's it's one of those films like a lot of these films we've been talking about where you sort of have to learn how to watch it yeah and of course i feel like i had already learned but i just didn't know that i was going to be bringing that type of knowledge into my viewing experience. right absolutely yeah but but you do kind of have to learn how to watch these kinds of films because they don't follow our typical expectations for how a story works, and that can be uh, make us uncomfortable or not like it or uh, just be annoying, all sorts of different things. Well, I think a movie like this, if this look, first of all, I would say the majority of people out there are going to hate this movie. That's fine. Um, but I think when you take on a film like this, under normal circumstances, your brain is looking for, okay, What's the real, what's reality versus what's fantasy? But imagine if the entire movie is fantasy. Now you've got a story that you have to go with and you're like, okay, what does it all mean? And you're having to put a puzzle together differently than you would normally because the plot isn't the same as a conventional plot. Exactly. And so it asks for a little bit more work on the part of the audience. I would say so. Yeah, you have to be prepared to put that work in because it's not, well, I don't know. I put in a lot of work on Fast X and none of it paid off. I still don't understand the movie. And then it ended in the middle of the movie. Yes, you know what? Time and time again, give me a Bo is Afraid over a Fast X. And I get it. A lot of people, the reason they watch movies in the first place is just an action escape. They They don't have the deeper love of movies that say you and I do. And that's why... I want to see, look, I, I went and saw The Flash, but I also want to make sure that there's still, there's the Boa's Afraids out there. There's room for everything. Okay, so we're off. All right, so uh, go get ready for that. Um, you, know, you know, maybe they'll be signing up more people for the subs and you can get to the next boat down there. I know you're a big Titanic oh, fan. Man. You went and saw the movie back in the theater again, so. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun of a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that should have been avoided. <laughs> Well, that's part of why it's so tragic, is it was totally avoidable. It's like, it's there. There it is. You've seen it. I don't understand. Like, I saw the IMAX movie from the 90s where they had gone down, and I saw it on big screen, and that was that was enough for me. Yeah, I, I have no desire to be that far underwater. I don't. I don't want to be that far underwater. Yeah, like, I don't actually even want to be in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a tie in there with Bo is Afraid, so get ready, people. Okay. Um, all right. Goodbye, everybody. Until next time. Bye. Bye-bye.